war had just begun, and uh, it was a very difficult and uh, ultimately the bloodiest war in American history. So that was last week. But now we're going to move forward, we're going to move back even further to the first Congress. So let's call it the first Congress, which was uh, took it to, took the count or took uh, was sworn in in 1789. And today's story is about Madison. So last week was the 37th Congress, which was 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 Lincoln's story, and tonight's story is going to be primarily, as I'm going to describe it, about Madison, who was uh, probably the most important, and it wasn't just one person, obviously, but uh, one of those who drove that legislation through and was uh, the figurehead and uh, the, the, let's call him the, the towering figure, among others, at the first Congress in 1789. Fantastic. Well, what I was really impressed with Madison is, tell us about the first law they passed as a nation. It's not what you would think. Okay, so we will go into more detail about the law. So we'll save some time. We'll give we'll give some people some um, some expectation, anticipation about the laws. But to answer your question, the first law was which was passed. And remember the background, which we should go into. But the background was this: so uh, you know, we we got our freedom in 1776. Is the Declaration of Independence that we could talk about, and we were originally operating under the Articles of Confederation. And we'll go into some detail about how the Articles worked and the failures and the difficulties with the Articles of Confederation. But now. 1789 is when we realize we need more and more powerful and more robust federal government, so we're able to get our act together and, and ratify the Constitution, and now we, we take that that goes into effect, and this is in 1789 is when the Congress gets sworn in. So here is your question that you're asking, which is, what is the first law that Congress pass, passes uh, now when they are officially taking office? And by way of background, uh, the president hadn't been sworn in yet. The legislature had not, you know, the legislature is, is the as Congress, but the judiciary had not been created because uh, the president hadn't been sworn in yet, and it's up to Congress to create the courts. The courts don't create themselves. So all you had at this point was Congress, Article One, which is the, uh, the the legislative branch. So in this environment, what is the first thing they do? Is your question? And the quick answer is that the first law that was passed by the first Congress was on May fifth, seventeen eighty nine. It was the Oath Act, and uh, the reason why they decided to do, and I, I like to describe it as, they were very logical and practical. They could have tried to do something uh, that was the Bill of Rights, which eventually they're going to get to. They could have done something like creating the Department of War, but what was the first act? It was very practical, as we said, and uh, you know they understood that they we're going to be taking office, but the Constitution doesn't spell out what the oaths are for members of Congress. So that's why I describe it as uh, it was very common sense, and uh, they're getting, you know, uh, there was a baby step, step they had to get out of the way that all everybody could agree on. We need to have an oath. Let's describe what the oath is. So that was, it's a good tribute question for people. What was the first act of Congress? And it was the Oath Act of May 5th, 1789. Does the oath end in, so help me God? You know what, I'm going to go pull it up. I don't have it in front of me. And okay. That's a good segue to statutesandstories.com. So why do we do this on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock? And the answer is because I'm here uh, describing my website, statutesandstories.com. And when people want to look at these old laws that we talk about today, go to the website, and you can pull it up yourself. Of course, you could Google it. But uh, I take these old laws, some of which I have in my law collection. Uh, this, again, is a law book that goes back to 1789. And you can uh, read in as much detail as you want uh, the statutes and these laws, these acts of Congress. And these are the acts of the first Congress. So I, I will look that up before the evening is over to see what the yeah, yeah I think that was added by Washington uh, well my god the first it. Congress was at the Trinity Church you would think they would put no 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 they were at uh, the federal house federal building in downtown uh, Manhattan 
It wasn't in it. It wasn't at the. It wasn't at the federal hall. Um, federal hall, right? It, but it was in. It was the Trinity Church. No, that's down the street. I used to work near there. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. So I can't. Uh, A block away. Adam, You're in the right I, neighborhood. Who's, who's correct? And I am looking up the oath act. So give me a second. Oh, okay. So we yeah, stopped. Yeah, that's fine. But. Uh, my God, I was no, Trinity Church is down the street. I'll, I'll describe, I'll be delicate here. You're both right that the Congress met at the Federal Hall, right. uh, which was where um, we, we can talk about what else occurred at Federal Hall. It's a very important well, location. Washington was sworn in. And yeah. that's where Washington, there's a famous, yeah. there's a famous uh, piece of artistic, right. it's not a picture, I can't describe it as a picture, but there are drawings and murals of Washington no. taking the oath of office. Yeah. And there's a statue of Washington outside it today. It's right next to, uh, across from the New York Stock Exchange. Correct. These are yeah. all very close to one another, and that's a yep. big, gigantic statue of Washington with his hands out uh, by his side, and it is exactly right, right near Wall Street and uh, right near Trinity Church. You can see Trinity Church from uh, the old, um, you know, the federal uh, the federal building, which was then torn down, and they turned it into a location where they collected tariffs, because tariffs were so important. To, oh, how, yes. New York, how New York of them. And the tariff uh, building was very fancy. Now it's a museum of the American Indian, but the tariff custom house was a very fancy building downtown, in downtown Manhattan. Well, Over time, they had to adapt more of these uh, locations to, to house the money that was coming in. And we're a little bit off the subject, but since we're talking about tariffs, the ship captains would come into New York Harbor, which was one of the largest harbors in the, of all the 13 states. And the ship captain would get off the boat, and he would head into the location, the, the tariff office, and that's where they would collect the revenues. And the vast majority of federal income was coming from ship captains who would report with their ship manifests what they had on their boat and the quantities. And that's when the ship captain would pay to the uh, tariff collectors or the, the revenue agents, whatever it is that they were paying. So there was money coming into this building. So eventually they tore it down and they had to put in place uh, safes and uh, you know had to secure it because this was a lot of money coming through this building. Yep. That's, that's the same location where the, uh, the original federal Congress met. Yeah, and I think that's why the Coast Guard was initially a, a part of the Department of the Treasury because they were called revenue cutters. They would uh, collect tariffs that were unpaid or otherwise deal with uh, ships. I'm agreeing with you again, and that gets to the Hamilton's job as the first Secretary of Treasury. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but since you asked the question, so let's talk about the, what Hamilton did as the Secretary of Treasury. And the quick answer is he knew all about, and let's talk about his background. This is a kid that comes out of Nevis in the Caribbean, and uh, that Nevis was a location in St. Croix he also lived in, where there was a lot of trading that was taking place, uh, and a lot of smuggling that was taking place with rum and with sugar and the slave trade, all kinds of trading taking place in the Caribbean. So he grew up, and that was one of his first jobs. He sort of uh, fell into it, and he took good advantage of it, where they used him as a clerk, where he would, uh, and he spoke French, he spoke a couple languages, so he was, his job, especially when his boss left to go to England, uh, a relatively young kid, he is keeping track of uh, the ship, ship manifests and the, the, the goods that are coming in and the different currencies and the different dollar amounts, and a lot of it's being out, uh, unloaded uh, because he's working for a clerk for an import-export business, one of the largest in in uh, Nevis, so he's keeping track of what's coming into their warehouses and what they're going to be selling it for, what they're buying it for. Yeah. So he had a lot of inside information, inside baseball about how trading worked. So now, years later, when he becomes, and he's still in his early 30s, when he becomes the Secretary of Treasury after the war and after the Articles period, he knows what goes on with trading. He knows the smuggling, and he realizes we have to, if we're going to collect this 
money that we're going to need, and we'll talk about why he needs money and why the government needs money to get their house in order. So he realizes that what happened what would happen was two boats would meet up off off the shore or in little hidden locations and coves, and they would trade away from the tariff collectors. And that's why the tariff collectors weren't collecting money because the vast majority of this was all being done indirectly in the underground economy, if you will, offshore. So he decides that in order for him to collect the money that the government's going to need, they put in place a law that creates 10, 10 cutters. That's exactly right, the, the, the cutter service. And the, the cutters are to make sure that the boats aren't doing their business away from the port, but they actually have to come into the port. This is starting, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is starting to sound like tax evaders was the first profession Absolutely. before prostitution. Absolutely. Uh, you know, think about it. I mean, geez, they're hiding out in coals and they'll pay taxes. Well, the key is to have your tariff rates low, high enough to collect the money you need, but low enough that people don't try to avoid it. Right. And that was uh, the, the finance minister for Louis XIV, Colbert, that uh, Adam talked about a week or two ago. He said the, the key was how to pluck the goose without having too much hissing. Okay. Something like that. that cool. I'll continue, Adam. That was, a, you know, we got to do brevity every once in a while. Okay, go ahead. All right, so let's give more buildup, and you have some good questions. So the first act of Congress was the Oath Act, and we're going to talk about how the tariffs get put in place, and Hamilton rolls that out in his job as the first Secretary of Treasury. But today I really want to focus on Madison. And before we get into the weeds with the first Congress, let me mention to everybody that in the past we've talked about, when we when we describe Hamilton, we, of course, talk about the Chernow book, and we talk about Joseph Ellis, another of my historians that I really love. But tonight some of the historians that we're going to reference are Gordon Wood, who wrote the book Empire of Liberty, and also Fergus, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but the Borderwich. So Fergus Borderwich wrote a book just two or three years ago called The First Congress, and the full name of the book is The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government. So we'll be citing to that book by a Borderwich. So um, now when we get into the details, the, I want to get the timeline, and most of the time I don't like to talk about dates because you know, if we overload people with dates, it gets a little confusing. But here I think it's important to know the, the time frame. So let's give a couple important dates. So one date that everybody knows is July 4th of 1776. And July 4th, 1776 is a declaration of independence. We're fighting the British. And whenever I mention July 4th, 1776, I also like to mention that for John Adams, who played a very important role as one of the founding fathers during the Revolutionary period, he thought July 2nd was a more important date, July 2nd, 1776. Why does Adams focus on July 2nd? Because July 2nd was the day where they actually declared independence, and then Congress approved, the Continental Congress approved the de text of the Declaration on July 4th. So for Adams, July 2nd was more important than July 4th, because July 4th is the text, but the actual Declaration was on July 2nd. So that tells us where independence comes from, July 2nd, July 4th, and uh, the war ends in 1783, and the first Congress, as, as we all remember, recognized was the Continental Congress. That was during the war period. And then from the Continental Congress, once we declare independence, we have the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. So let's call it the first real Congress when we're a new country, the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation were written in November of 1777, but it took several years until they were ratified by the colonies and their brand new states now in March of 1781. So let's call that our first 
you know, Constitution, if you will, under the Articles of Confederation, and that's 1781. So the problem, though, was that the Articles of Confederation were very weak. What are some of the difficulties with the Articles? And the first was that you had to have nine states agreeing, otherwise the Confederation Congress, because that's what they called it, the, Con the Congress of the Confederation, or the Confederation Congress, which was very weak, couldn't do anything unless nine states agreed. Another example of how this was very weak was that Congress didn't have the ability to raise money. It depended upon the states. If the states gave money to Congress, then the federal government had money. But the problem was states weren't coughing up money, and that's no surprise because no one likes to cough up money. So it was a very weak government. You needed nine states, and eventually they started realizing, the founding fathers and mothers, that you had Shays Rebellion. We can talk about Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts. One state was trying to tax another state. There was difficulties with Maryland was fighting with Virginia over the navigation of the Potomac. We also had issues with the British weren't leaving the forts that they'd agreed to leave. In the, in the Midwest, in Michigan, and along the Great Lakes. Fort Detroit. So Go ahead. Fort Detroit. Fort Detroit. So under the 1783, the Treaty of Paris, after the Revolutionary War, Britain had agreed to do certain obligations, including leaving, getting the troops out of those forts, and they didn't do it. Uh, so there was concern that uh, Britain could start picking off territory. Uh, also, we were having problems now in the 1780s, when we, before we created our federal government, with uh, the Spaniards, and uh, Spain controlled the Mississippi, and they were locking up the Mississippi, not letting ships go through New Orleans, so there could have been issues, and there were issues with Spain. So the, the countries facing issues, including Shays Rebellion, which is a revolution, if you will, or a revolt, an uprising of, uh, of prior soldiers in the Revolutionary War who were getting hit with taxes by Massachusetts, and they hadn't been paid after having worked for seven, eight years in the colonial, uh, you know, the army. So you had all kinds of problems, and the articles couldn't solve them. So ultimately, you have the group of Madison, Hamilton, Washington, and we can also talk about Jay, but they get together, they convince the states, we need to do something about this, we need to right the ship of state, we need a more powerful powerful federal government. So that's the Philadelphia. That's in 1787. And then finally, the states approve it. One other episode, we'll, one day we'll talk about the state ratification conventions. But this all brings us, this is the background, brings us to 1789. So the Constitution was written, the Constitution was ratified, and the Continental Congress and the Confederation Congress, I should be clear. The Confederation Congress came up with this date that we're going to meet. The first session is going to meet on March 4th, 1789, which is a big moment in American history. This new federal government is going to meet March 4th, 1789 in New York, which is the location for the first Congress, which is why earlier we were talking about the Federal Hall in New York near Trinity Church in New York, which is at the tip of Manhattan in the old area of New York, which was uh, you know the Dutch area of New York. So that's where we are. So the story, the story starts for the first Congress on March 4th, 1789. And I smile when I tell you March 4th, because that was the date that was chosen for when they're supposed to meet. Problem was, back then, how did people travel? And the answer is uh, they traveled on horses, they traveled in carriages, they traveled by boat. And although Congress was supposed to convene on March 4th, they did not get a quorum until early April. So they were sitting around, and they were uh, scratching their head, and they were... No, they weren't. They were drinking. Well, drinking whiskey, that's why they decided to tax eating whiskey. Eating at Francis Tavern. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So they were supposed to meet on March 4th. Many congressmen and senators were there, but they didn't have a quorum, so they couldn't officially do anything until early April. Well, so, a Adam, let me, let me uh, make a, an observation there. A lot of times when I talk to Europeans, and especially the British, they say, well, why do you have a term between when you have your elections and when Congress meets or the president takes office. For example, in England, 
they have an election and the next day if the prime minister loses he resigns and the new government comes in of course they had a shadow government in in parliament all along and i think it goes back in the united states to the fact that we've had our democratic institutions for over 200 years and back in those days as you were saying you couldn't just meet the next day so let's compare parliamentary systems of government, so that's England parliamentary, with ours, which is a constitutional republic. Yep. So uh, one difference is that Congress meets in a two-year term, right. and that two-year term has a beginning date and an end date, which is set by Congress, and uh, then it expires at the end of that term. They're only elected for a two-year term, whereas in, I don't know all the parliamentary systems, but the prime minister serves until there's a vote of no contest, and it's time to bring in a new prime minister, yep. which happens in uh, some cities, and some, I should say some countries, Italy is an, is an example that comes to light a lot, mm -hmm. and it may be happening in England if they get some more no-confidence votes. Yep. But they, we have a specified two-year term. That's why when we talk about the 37th Congress, which was the Congress for Lincoln, his first Congress, you can count the number of Congresses, and you uh, divide it by two because it's a two-year term. So I don't know if that fully answers your question, yep. but our system is very different than, than a parliamentary system. Yep, I agree. Okay, continue. Now you, you made him going down a deep rabbit hole, and yep. I hope he can start where he left off. All right. We love the rabbit holes. That's what makes it all worthwhile. So March 4th is the date they're supposed to meet. Unfortunately, because of delays in travel, they're not able to start doing business. And my point is that what does Madison do? Because he arrives relatively early. He doesn't just sit there drinking, and I'm sure he does drink a little bit with, uh, with those because they have to meet each other. A lot of these guys knew, they knew each other from the, from the Constitutional Convention, but not everybody knew each other so they can meet with, with one another. But Madison employs his time to write the rules for the House. So he's sort of getting his ducks in a row um, you know, while they're waiting for everyone to come together so they can have a quorum. And uh, let's see what else has to happen. One of the first things they have to do as a body once they get sworn in is they have to hold the Electoral Congress, and they have to officially go through the process of electing the president. So the House and the Senate and the electors get together, uh, they count the ballots, and lo and behold, uh, and here it's unanimous, and this has never happened again in American history. George Washington is selected to be the president. And now they have to notify George Washington. It was probably no surprise that he was the one that was going to get selected. So George Washington's not in New York yet. He's in Virginia. So they send a message quickly to notify George that he has to come to, to New York for, for to meet with Congress to come in to be the president. And uh, this creates more delays because everywhere that George stops as he goes from one city to another coming from Virginia up to New York, you know, people want to congratulate him. It's a celebration that this is history that's being made. So the streets are full, and, and eventually Washington gets a little frustrated. You know, he's a great guy. He's very patient, but he wants to get into New York, and he has to be polite when everyone wants to come out and greet him and see him as he is traveling up into New York City to meet with the first Congress and be sworn in. So when does that first swear-in occur, that inauguration? And it's at Federal Hall, as you both mentioned, on April 30th of 1789. So now you have part two. Part one is Congress is convened. Part two President Washington comes in, he's sworn in and inaugurated on April 30th, 1789. But now you only have two branches of government. You have the legislature, Congress, and you have the president, but you don't have the judiciary. And the president right now is the only member of the executive. So I, I don't know the numbers. You guys would know better than me. How many members of the executive department of the federal government are there? And it's uh, probably in the millions when you include the military and the post office. But, but here, George Washington is the only member of the executive branch after he has just sworn in. Well, even, even then they only had four or five departments. 
So let's let's do that. Let's talk about the departments that are created, and let's talk about the phenomenal cabinet that Washington puts together. So, and maybe I'll do this in the form of a question. So, if you're Washington and you want to unify your country, uh, well, what kind of diversity are you going to want on your cabinet? You want people from different states. Exactly. So who does he choose? And remember, back in this time period, the largest state was Virginia, and Washington is from Virginia. So who's the first person he chooses? And Madison and no, Hamilton? No, 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 no. He needs a secretary of state. Well, that's Jefferson. Is that right? And then uh, Madison to handle all affairs. No, no, Madison stays in Congress. But he's the liaison from the no, president no, to the Congress. No, he's in the House. He needs secretary of state as Jefferson, treasury is Hamilton. Yeah, now, what about... Um, no, Hamilton plays a role in... And in, the VP is Adams. Is that right, correct? That's correct, yeah. Who well, picks the VP? Was that the Electoral College? It was second place. The, the sec there you go, Manny. Second oh, place. Right. So the second largest number of votes gets to be vice president. So Adams is vice president, and the vice president, as we remember, gets to be in charge of the Senate. And right. we're going to talk about how Adams sort of gets bogged down with the Senate going through protocol, and the Senate, unlike today, where the Senate is all open and anyone can attend unless they go into closed sessions when they're talking about something confidential or a committee uh, dealing with something that's uh, confidential or, or national security. But back then, the Senate considered themselves sort of like the House of Lords in England, yep. where uh, the upper crust or you know, those who uh, have uh, all kinds of reasons we could talk about what the House of Lords is in England, but that the original Senate met behind closed doors, and that they considered themselves sort of above the fray and uh, sort of a different body than the more democratic House of Representatives. As it should right. be. Yeah. I think the framers wanted it that way, correct? That's how it started, but it doesn't say that they had to meet behind closed doors. Right, that was right. their choice. <laughs> so let, let's lay out the cast of characters. So obviously Washington is the president. He's just sworn in. Adams is sworn in and inaugurated with him, and he's going to be the head of the Senate, and he's the vice president. Uh, we talked about how uh, we have to choose a cabinet. So the Congress starts after the Oath Act. They start laying out and creating the, the different executive departments. So we talked about the, the Secretary of Treasury is chosen, and that's going to be Jefferson. And Jefferson has all kinds of experience because he'd spent lots of time in France, and uh, you know, he's from Virginia. So now you have two Virginians. You have Washington and you have Jefferson, are both Virginians. And as we mentioned, we want to have some regional diversity on, the, on this brand-new cabinet. So the next department that's selected is the Department of War, the War Department, and they give you the dates. So the Department of Foreign Affairs, which is what they called the Secretary of State, it was called the Department of Foreign Affairs, was created on July 27, 1789. The War Department was the second department established, and that was in August of 1789, and they chose Henry Knox, and that was an easy choice, because Henry Knox had been the head of the War Department during the Articles period, and he was uh, one of the commanding generals uh, that uh, Washington had during the Continental, during the, the Revolutionary War. And the was period. he a successful general? Yeah. He, was, uh, he was an excellent general, and he was a behind-the-scenes, uh, you know, Tactician. Thing with the, the moving the pieces and the, the chessboard. But uh, here, the, my question for you is, what was his background? Before he became uh, very active with the War Department during the Revolutionary Period, what was Henry Knox? What was his background? Oh, God, you got me I there. have no idea, but I think Fort Knox is named after him. That makes a lot of sense. So here, this is uh, a, sort of a shout-out to people who love books, to booksellers and book lovers. So Henry Knox was a book dealer, oh. and uh, he really has in his 
collection of books, and I, I want to say it was Massachusetts because he comes from Massachusetts. So he happens to have books that talk about the math of how cannons work. So who do they need for the War Department during the Revolutionary War? A book dealer who happens to have books that talk about how you use cannons and about the, the uh, I don't even know how you do the, the cannon geography or whatever yep. it's called, the, the algebra of how cannonballs yep. get fired and yep. the trajectories. Yes. So this is a guy that uh, basically approaches Washington, and he has the idea about uh, going to Fort Ticonderoga because there were cannons there, and it was Henry Knox's idea to go steal the cannons or confiscate the cannons and then bring them back to Boston, which is where the British Army was holed up, and that's how we take back Boston in the 1776, but that's on the side. So uh, long story short, you need people who are you know, brave to be in charge of the, uh, the military, but also people who can uh, connect the dots and uh, who can do strategy. So that was Henry Knox. So we've got the two cabinet officials. What is the third department, Manny? What's the next part? And in my opinion, the most important of all the three cabinet departments, what's the next? The money department, the treasury. <laughs> Bingo. So Hamilton, and that's the third department to be chosen. In that order that we just discussed, in September of 1789, Congress writes the law that creates the Treasury Department. And we may have talked about this in prior evenings, but uh, Washington is doing his homework. He wants to make sure we get a very well-qualified cabinet. So he reaches out to the old Secretary of, of Treasury, which I'm pretty confident was Morris, Robert Morris. and uh, who, was the, who was the banker from Philadelphia? from Philadelphia, one of the wealthiest Americans, and uh, Morris tells George that, uh, and I've been doing this for a while, but truthfully, the, the most qualified person to do this new job, and, and Hamilton has been studying this for years. And writing about it in the Federalist Papers. Writing about it, perfect. He's been writing about it, and back to the Revolutionary War period, he was diagnosing the issues and the problems of what we needed to do to establish a government that actually worked, unlike the Articles. And he saw firsthand, working with Washington during the Revolutionary War, how uh, things, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, a difficult situation, getting money to supply the troops and getting supplies, and it was very ineffectual when you had effectively 13 different colonies that considered themselves separate countries for all intents and purposes, uh, trying to be held together, and under the Articles you couldn't do it. So Hamilton was getting the ducks in a row and studying this for years. So he's called upon by Washington, he happily accepts, and that gives him regional geography now. So you have you have uh, Henry Knox from Massachusetts, which was one of the bigger states, and you have Hamilton from New York, which was the biggest state next to Virginia. So that's the cabinet. Wow. Very powerful. Was there an attorney general? Yes, attorney was. General. So that comes later. They they do the office of the attorney general towards the end of the session. Okay. And that's a good question. So who became the first attorney general? And here we're going to refer all of our listeners to the Virginia plan. So when we were doing the Constitutional Convention, the idea for the Virginia plan was Madison. But Madison's a smart guy. He wanted a more influential and a very well-respected leader in the Virginia delegation to be the one that introduced the Virginia plan. So it was it was actually not Madison who introduced it. It was, and I'm trying to remember the name of our... Randolph? I'm sorry? Was it Randolph? It was Edmund Randolph. Who, exactly right. So Edmund Randolph, who was a very prominent Virginian, he was older than Madison, and he submitted the Virginia plan, which had been written by Madison. So this is the, the cabinet, and I'd like to say that uh, never have we had such a well-qualified cabinet. <laughs> never again. And it was only this group of four people. It was Washington and these four advisors. That yeah. was the federal government when it first started. Yeah, no deep state. 
So they, they were deep in some ways, but yep. not deep in numbers. So let me give you a quote now, because I've got a bunch of quotes I want to sprinkle in during the conversation. So now let's go to one of my favorite historians. This is Joseph Ellis. And he describes how when Lincoln does the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln uses the famous language when he starts the speech about four score and seven years ago, our nation was brought forth, and I'm not quoting it, but I'm paraphrasing it, upon this continent. And Washington, I'm sorry, Lincoln is describing how the, the country is created. And what um, what Ellis likes to describe is that, that um, and he's, he's being sort of tongue-in-cheek about it, so Lincoln isn't wrong when he says four score and 20 years ago. Four score and 20 years ago would bring you from 1863 to 1776. So Lincoln is dating the creation of the country to 1776. But Ellis tries to make the argument that 1776, we didn't have a country yet. We just had colonies that were fighting with England. So for Ellis, the country was really created when the first constitution is written, when the when the first Congress meets in 1789. So here, if we wanted to rewrite the Gettysburg Address using Ellis's reasoning, instead of saying four score and seven years ago, and people know that a score is 20 years, so four score and seven would be 20, 40, 60, 87 years ago. So is that so, the origin of fake no, news? No, 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 no. No, <laughs> no but I, okay, but I want to take issue with Mr. Ellis, because I think that at Gettysburg, Lincoln did not want to hearken back to the Constitution he wanted to hearken back to the Declaration of Independence. And this is a discussion that I had with Brenda McMenamin, where I've said, and I don't know what you, do you may, this may be the first time you've heard this, but that the, uh, the, the Constitution is the piping of American government and the in Declaration of Independence is the steam or the air so the, conditioning so no, instead of that piping gives the it plumbing. life. It's a, it gives it life. Yeah, the plumbing. And, the, and Lincoln really wanted to hearken back to the principles and the ideals proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, not just to the legal structure of the Constitution. So I would take issue with Mr. Ellis, although I think he's a great historian. I can't argue with that analysis, and he's trying to make a point, which is that um, you know we didn't have a country per se. Right. So depending upon what you're trying to, what, what do you think Lincoln was pointing to? Is he pointing to the notion of freedom yes. and independence and liberty? And uh, you know that was the moment where we declared. Well, the the ideals that all men are created equal, and that he said we have, we want we are witnessing a new birth of freedom. So he was harking back to the Declaration of Independence. I, would say. I can't disagree with that. Yeah. So let me use some more metaphors. So here's a quote about this uh, moment in time when we create the Constitution. So here's the quote. If Jefferson provided the essential poetry of American political discourse, and what was the Declaration? The Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Right. They are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, yada, yada, yada. So if no, but don't say yada, yada, yada. That's the one that we're all forgetting, unalienable rights. Yep. Among these rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it describes why governments are created among men. So the poetry of America is Jefferson. So let me read the quote. So if Jefferson provided the essential poetry of American political discourse, Hamilton established the prose of American statecraft, because as Secretary of Commerce, I'm sorry, Secretary of, of, of the Treasury, it is Hamilton that starts putting together the government itself and the, yep. having the, me the mechanisms and the mechanics work, and yep. that's going to br bring us to Madison because we have to write the laws to make it all possible, and that's going to be Madison's role. Yep, yep. And Madison, of course, was the father of the Constitution. So 
So I completely agree. So let's give more kudos and some more respect to Madison. So people refer to Washington as the father of the country. Madison, exactly right, is the father of the Constitution. And we can, at another night, go through all the work behind the scenes that Madison did at the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, apparently he was a really tempered soul, the one who really was patient and never lost any... He had thought it all through before, though. He well, that's yeah. that's what are you saying with that? That he was just masterful at, yep. at what he was doing. Yep, yep, yep. It wasn't like he really could control the unexpected nature yeah, of a bunch of people. Yeah, he knew how to guide the. the you knew how to guide. You know, these, and it's funny. The only these thing people they, they into didn't creating have figured document. out until the last minute was uh, the electoral college for electing the president, because they had not thought that through. He, nobody had thought that through. And if you look at the Roman Republic which was in some respects the model with the Senate for the aristocrats and the House for the plebeians, the common people, and similar to the parliament, they didn't want a king as chief executive. So, and But the Roman Republic did not have a president. There was no chief executive officer of the Roman Republic because the, the Senate and the people were jealous that they would have uh, whoever would come, and if there was only one executive, he would take over like Julius Caesar, and eventually you had the emperor, and he ruled over everything, so it became a military dictatorship. So the the post, the post of president of the American Republic was really a new institution in the world history. The whole thing history, was an experiment. In, in world history. And it was patterned, they trusted George Washington. And they, but they wasn't, had to it, out, wasn't it actually Adams who pointed to Washington Well, saying, everybody knew that Washington would be the guy. But the question then is, how do you elect him? And they didn't want direct popular vote like we've discussed you know they they wanted uh some kind of blend so they blended in the the states the two senators from each state and then the house of representatives so that's how we got the electoral college uh and it's interesting that you know it was really it was the first time in world history that a chief executive officer of a government uh was selected especially of a republican government because you had kings you had princes but uh, this was a real breakthrough in that sense. Let me do a quick aside, and I want to go back to Manny's point, that uh, my son is studying world history in high school. Mm-hmm. And Sparta, very yep. different sort of a system, but there were elements of being a democracy. Mm-hmm. And so Sparta has two kings, and the kings were selected by their legislative body of citizens. And the two kings were, if one died, they have another king. And one king can do uh, you know, fighting, and the other king can stay behind. So, But this idea of having a chief executive, a president, which other countries didn't have. This is all uncharted territory. Yep. So going back to Madison, and I'm agreeing with Manny's discussion of uh, Madison's uh, personality, and I want to go into more detail about Madison, but I promised to do a little bit of information from uh, Fergus Badowich, who is the historian who wrote the book about the first Congress from just a couple years ago, 2016 is when it came out. So here's a great quote about Madison. So uh, Bordowitz says, no man contributed more to the achievements of the first Congress than James Madison. He guided debate almost single-handedly during the first two sessions. He played a crucial role in strengthening the presidency, shaped the amendments that would become the Bill of Rights, helped forge the compromise that established the seat of government, and that was a compromise with Hamilton. And it is impossible to overrate his contribution to the Congress's success. So clearly, Madison wasn't only the father of the Constitution, but Madison had a prominent role in the first Congress for the reasons that we're going to go into if we have time tonight. Now, was he the speaker? Of yes, Con- he, he was, but they didn't give him that name. Okay. But yeah, he was in essence a speaker, but he, what I said he earlier was true. He yet. was the, 
he was basically the right hand man. No, but Speaker of was a, Washington but in terms speaker of going back and a, forth is an office in the Constitution. So who was the Speaker in that first U.S. Congress? I believe it was Madison. Yes or no, Adam? Do you have any? You know? I, I'm not positive, and uh, I will look into that for okay. you. Uh, but I don't think he was Speaker. But I'll, I'll double check. So um, and he may not have wanted to be Speaker. Right. But uh, let me give you some more details about what Madison does, and I will definitely get an answer about who is Speaker. So what does Madison do? And this is a quote from Gordon Wood, another historian yep. who wrote the book, uh, The Empire of Liberty: A History of the Early Republic. So yep. Gordon Wood is one of the premier historians for this time period. Yep. Once the country starts in 1789, so he recounts the story of how Madison gives over 100 speeches in the House of Representatives just in the first session alone. And here's a good quote for you. So Madison's extraordinary dominance over the proceedings of the first Congress came not merely from his reputation and speechmaking, but from his broad knowledge and careful preparation for what had been done was even more important. So here's an example of what Madison does. Uh, Madison's going to be recommending that they put in place tariffs, and of course Hamilton later builds upon that and puts in bigger tariffs, and Hamilton wants protective tariffs, not just small tariffs. So what Madison does is he goes to all the 13 states to figure out what their tariffs were. So he literally assembles to understand how state revenue works, all of the available statistical information on commerce between the states. And this is a guy who's uh, sort of quiet. He does the work. Uh, he's not looking for the spotlight. And he works very closely with Jefferson. He wants Jefferson to get the spotlight. And he becomes the successor to Jefferson. But Madison is a guy that works behind the scenes and does the details and the hard work with his nose to the grindstone, that's Madison. And when you look at the way he dresses, Madison wears black, and he's very thin, and uh, he, he's not very, um, he doesn't eat that much. He's, he's very slight. He's short. And it's hard to hear him because he doesn't talk very loudly. But uh, when Madison talks, people listen. So that, that now we can throw in a little bit of Ronald Reagan. It's amazing what we can accomplish if nobody cares who gets the credit. Who gets the credit, yep. Yeah, so that's a wonderful thing. So I, uh, I got ahead of you just to to help you out a bit, to help us out a bit, actually. Madison was just the leader of the House, but the, the actual Speaker of the House was Frederick Mulberg of Pennsylvania. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that today we think that the Speaker of the House is like Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi, the lead, the political leader. But I think when they started the, in the first Congress, the only model they had was England. And in England, the Speaker of the House is not a partisan player. He's, he may not even be a member of the House. In fact, in the U.S., the speaker doesn't have to be a member of the House. It's so in, about process. Right. So the, he, the, in England, the, the speaker really kind of uh, is a referee between the two parties. And in America, even today, you don't, you don't have to be a member of the House of Representatives to be elected speaker, although it's become the position of the, the leader of the majority. Same, same with the Supreme Court. You don't have to be an attorney to be oh, on I, the I, Supreme I'm Court. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. You know, I, I, you know, I got a slight, I got to, oh, since I'm the commoner here among the three, I yeah. always got to needle the attorneys, okay? Yep. You can be a non-attorney and sit on the Supreme Court. How yes. about them, app? So we, we could debate that at a later date. <laughs> so, Let's go let, back in let, time. Let me do more detail on Madison because I want to make sure people understand his role during this first Congress. So effectively, he becomes the de facto leader of the House of Representatives. And you are right, Manny, that the Speaker of the House was Frederick Muhlenberg from Pennsylvania. And by the way, it was Frederick Muhlenberg who gets stabbed in the back when he votes against Jay's, and he votes to support Jay's treaty. This is later on in the 1790s. And uh, Fisher Ames, who is a senator or a congressman, rather, from Massachusetts, describes Madison as the first man of the House. So 
Madison is the guy that's running the house, mm-hmm. which has the heavy lifting to do to assemble this government. Yes, in- incredible. And the, the wonderful quote that's a little bit long that, sh- that describes the, the, the character of Madison. Do you care to read it, even though it's uh, a little bit lengthy, or uh, would you like me, uh, me to read it? Okay, go for it. So if you've got some quotes, uh, bring them to the table. And the, the, what I love about the website, Statutes and Stories, is not, you're not listening to Adam Levinson give his opinion about history. We're quoting from historians and we're quoting from primary sources. And I think you're probably talking about the Fisher Ames quote or Fisher Ames yes, letter. Yes, George Minot. In, uh, there you go. Go for it. In 1789, on May the 29th, it says, he derives, talking about Madison, He derives from nature an excellent understanding, but I think he excels in the quality of judgment. He is possessed of sound judgment, which which perceives truth with great clearness and can trace it through the maze of debate without losing it. As a reasoner, he is remarkably... This is a word that I'm not really familiar with. Maybe you guys can tell me. What? Perspicuous. Perspicacious. Yes, my God, that one's hard to pronounce. Okay. And that means insightful. Insightful and methodical. Yep. He is a studious man. He's devoted to public business and thorough master of almost every public question that can arise. And he will spare us no pains to become so if he happens to be in want of information. What a man understands clearly and has viewed in every different point of light, he will explain to the admiration of others who have not thought of it all but little and who may be in praise for the pains he saves them. And people just have to appreciate who he was. And I think the way you described him as slender and always dressed in black, uh, that's what gave people yeah. the curiosity to realize that they were in front of greatness and they needed but to you listen. Guys, you're, you guys are really missing the point here because what we have here is a rich, white, male slave owner. Oh, white privilege. Here we go again. So how can you have a republic that is founded on liberty pretends to be found when when those are the kind of leaders that they has. You hear that? This is what he's been doing all afternoon. He's well, always throwing a bone to the left to give them no, 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 marching just, orders. We, we need to be able to answer those questions. Yes, this is the uh, the idiosyncrasy and oddity that is the founding of this great nation. Rich, white, male slave owner. What do you think? A total aristocrat is what you're saying. American style. American well, style. What I will say about Madison is that he had the luxury because his father is a very wealthy and his father was in charge of the plantation and the estate. Madison's job as a Virginia gentleman, and that's what they consider themselves, uh, was to do public service. So he goes, yep. to, he goes to Princeton University, or to, I think yep. it was Princeton, I'm not positive. The, the College of New Jersey. The College of New Jersey, which became Princeton. Yep. And uh, he, he was, was sickly as a kid. Yep. But his focus is on learning and studying politics and government. And um, you know, he applies that knowledge, and it's a good thing he did. Yep. So l- let me give you some more background about his qualifications to be the leader of the House, although he wasn't the Speaker of the House. So this is a guy, as we mentioned earlier, who writes the Federalist Papers with Hamilton. This is a guy that was, uh, for all intents and purposes, I use that expression, was the leader of the Virginia delegation yep. during the Constitutional Convention. He was uh, involved with the ratification process in Virginia. And this leads me to one of my favorite stories about Madison, as the Constitution is convening. And remember, he was from Virginia, so he's a similar kind of an idea, that Washington, too, was a Virginia gentleman, and uh, Washington's job was to oversee his plantation, uh, but his job is also to do work for Virginia and to, to 
as a Virginia gentleman, whatever that meant in their minds, to uh, you know to help uh, the Virginia colony slash state uh, you know continue uh, doing its job as uh, as as the leading state in the in the, in the area. So here, here's the story that I love to tell. So Washington knows that he's going to become president, and uh, he's working with Madison to figure out uh, some of their planning, because Madison is all about planning. So here you go, recognizing that Washington was always relies on Madison for advice, because the two of them work together very much so early on in, these, in this time period. So before the inauguration, and maybe it was even after the inauguration, uh, Washington asked Madison, because he knows Madison's going to be the leader of the House. So Washington asked Madison to draft a letter to Congress, uh, which is going to express Washington's interest in working together with Congress. So it's his message, his inaugural address. He asked Madison to help him write it, which Madison does. So what does Congress do? So Washington gives his inaugural address, which Madison wrote for Washington. So what does Congress do? Congress asks Madison to write the response to Washington, responding to Washington's statement about how we have to work together and these are the things we have to do as co-equal branches of government. So lo and behold, the Congress doesn't realize that this was Madison, and this is a quote from Chernow. This is Madison. I'll read it to you. It was Madison writing to Madison. He had become the second most prominent figure in the new government, and during these early months of the first Congress, Madison is really Washington's, as you said, many congressional liaison, and Washington's closest confident and confidant, but that will change uh, because Madison isn't in the cabinet, he's just in the House. So Washington uh, winds up working more closely later on with Hamilton once Hamilton becomes the Secretary of State. Wow. Yeah, that's great. It, it, incredible that... Where is Benjamin Franklin in all this? Why is he being left no, he out? Was, he was dead by then, I think. He died really? shortly after the Constitution was signed. He was 80 years old. Wow, that's a eureka around. moment. Hear that, our audience. That's, uh, that's yeah, really... A, but that, no, Madison was really an so exceptional So Franklin really guy. had passed away, but he never got to see at all our he, country he come together. He was at the Constitutional Convention, and he signed it, but I think he passed away shortly thereafter. Wow. I don't think he made it to 1789. But I no, Madison is exceptional. And we talk about that. We've got lots of posts about the Constitution. So during the Constitutional Convention, when they're debating the, the various compromises, and remember, the Constitutional Convention was about compromises to get the 13 states to agree uh, to create the federal government. So well, there's a, a great series of quotes, and what we do on the website is we, we, we quote from letters and from speeches. So there's a great speech that uh, Franklin gives, and he was the elder statesman. He's very old. He's ailing, not in good health, and they have to carry him around on a stretcher uh, because it's hard for him to walk around. So uh, he gives a speech about how nothing is perfect. There are things that he disagrees with, but when you put it all together, uh, it's perfect, and they could not have done a better job, even though he disagrees with various pieces here or there. But he, he's sort of the, the wise figure looking from above who has the perspective. And, uh, and I've also come across some of the correspondence during this time period when Lincoln, I'm sorry, when, when Franklin passes away. It's a big deal in France because he was a scientist. This is a guy that was recognized and respected, and they were totally off the subject. But by the French Academy of Sciences and uh, you know these uh, these, these world-leading scientists, uh, had, they were close with Franklin. So all kinds of correspondence and letters would come into America to Congress, you know, wishing condolences uh, for the passing of Franklin, who was a not just uh, an inventor who was involved with glasses and with electricity, but he was he was a world-recognized figure in politics and government, and uh, you know for for what he had accomplished as a Renaissance man. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about Franklin. So let's go quickly back to 
talking about laws. So Madison is the one that's going to be involved in putting together the executive branch and writing these laws, and Hamilton will come in to sort of make it happen once the pieces get arranged. But what are some of the laws that get adopted by the first Congress? So we talked about the first law, which... Well, the one I want to mention, since I'm a whiskey drinker, is the Whiskey Act. Just want you to know. Really? Is that one of the first? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Absolutely. After the oath, they got they got some whiskey to say the oaths. Well, you know, it was it was a money maker. So go ahead, Adam, make my day. Let's talk about whiskey and alcohol. So you've got this brand new cabinet. John Jay is um, under the old system. He was the, the head of the, the Foreign Affairs Department, uh, and Henry Knox was the head of the War Department. So I'm going to ask you the question: Where do these guys, when they become the new cabinet, where do they hold their offices? Where are they going to rent space uh, to create the cabinet agencies? Where are they going to where are they going to be located? To your point, Manny. I would say uh, well, a bar. <laughs> yeah, a bar. So the, but they didn't have the Pentagon in these days. So Knox, presiding over the War Department, rents rooms over a Water Street tavern, and then Hamilton rents space over the famous tavern. And one of these days, uh, maybe I'll, I'll take you out to dinner there, or we'll, we'll have a drink. But the uh, the Francis Tavern, which is one of my favorite restaurants at the tip of Manhattan. Yep. So Francis Tavern, which has some history going back, oh, we could spend hours talking about Francis Tavern. Mm-hmm. But that's where the Secretary of Treasury establishes the Treasury Department, and it's, it's a very famous uh, pub in New York City, and it's still in operation. Wow. That's where they're. That's where they're. Definitely got to go there. I've been there a couple. Yeah. Yeah, haven't been there. Upstairs and get a drink. Absolutely. Fantastic. Act. You want to talk about the Whiskey Act. So that was not one of the first acts. Right. Some of the acts that came first. The Duties Acts of 1790. Really? Okay. Okay. Go ahead. So who, uh, let me just shut up and you tell me why the Whiskey okay. Act wasn't the first. Because <laughs> the, the Oath Act had to come first. Departments. And the first substantive act, and this is Madison now, the first substantive act is Hamilton hadn't been chosen yet. So the the first act was the Oath Act we talked about, but the first real act that accomplishes something that's of substance is the Tariff Act of 1789, and that puts in place the first tariffs. And a lot of the historians make the point that um, you know, one of the problems under the Articles was that Congress couldn't tax, it couldn't raise money, it was reliant and dependent, subservient on the states. So the first important act that gets adopted is Madison realizing, and he's sending a message that, hey, we have the ability now, we've got the power of the purse. So the first important act that was passed, uh, as Madison is pushing legislation through, which is the right to tax. Act of 1789, which uh, gives Congress its authority to get money, because you can't do anything unless you have money. Um, uh, yeah, and then just find out what everybody consumed the most of, and go after whiskey, so yep. you can tax more of it. And it created problems. So Hamilton realized that was not enough with the tariff. We needed to have higher tariffs, so they wind up raising tariffs. So that's the Duties Act and some of these additional acts that Hamilton writes and helps Congress adopt. Uh, but the, the Whiskey Act, to your point, realizes that, you know, what other sources of income do we have? Because we don't have the ability to do a federal income tax. So other than tariffs, how else can we raise money? And uh, whiskey uh, it was, in some respects, it was a currency because people would trade their whiskey that didn't have an American coinage yet. And that's something else that Hamilton winds up doing. We didn't have American dollars and coins yet. So uh, whiskey, uh, which was something that uh, could be transported, uh, you can actually track it and you can see where it's being made, at least on a large scale. So they put in place the Whiskey Act. And of course, that leads to more problems with farmers in western Pennsylvania. So earlier we talked about Chase Rebellion, where farmers and former soldiers that were in Massachusetts rebel. But unfortunately, in the early 1790s, the western Pennsylvania, so near the mountains, 
this was uh, sort of, I'll be careful describing it, but the more remote rural areas uh, did not like the fact that their very important whiskey was being taxed. And I think we talked about that another night, how Washington, yeah. this is the first time and the only time that a president leads an army where he's on the horse and leading the army, advancing. Now, he probably isn't the first person in front of the army, but he's commanding the army as they march with, um, with militia that they brought in from Virginia and a couple other states to put down the whiskey rebellion, which you're right, was the result of that whiskey tax. So be careful when you tax that you don't, uh, that you don't overtax. Absolutely. Good, yeah. Well, it seems like we've ignored that today. Now, you said that they didn't have any, any currency or coins. So when you'd pay these tariffs, what were you actually paying? They were using the Spanish and Just maybe to, some uh, British. Is that when my story takes place, where the Spanish silver dollar was actually being traded to pay these tariffs? And the British currencies. Well, the, the British currencies were all... Counterfeit. They were still, they were still they were good. circulating, but they were heavily counterfeited well, but because I think of the they war. Were still good. So, Adam, do you have an answer to that one? Was it the actual famous ocho reales de España being used to pay there tariffs? There were no U.S. dollars. There was no U.S. dollars. You've already admitted. So, can you really connect and tie the knot of my story? So, Manny, that's a great question, and I'm going to invite people to go to the website, go to the WSQF website, and uh, you have from the first Statutes and Story uh, podcast, so this is a time we're going to mention to everybody, we're now podcasting, so when you go to the first podcast, which is at the bottom of that Statutes and Stories podcast, uh, what do you want to call that part of the website, the podcasting section, what, what would you call it? No, no, it's uh, Statutes and Stories, it's its own link. So the, the podcasting link for Statutes and Stories. Yeah, Statutes and Stories is just one of the shows, and you can just hit on the link, Statutes and Stories, and all the podcasts show up. So on that link, we talked about that podcast. We talked about how back in the day, before we created the U.S. Mint, the different currencies that were out there was primarily the Spanish silver dollar, which was a very reliable, and it was uh, there are all kinds of reasons why the, there, there were a lot of the Spanish silver dollars, but uh, they were they were they were created in a way that way, and probably Ed can talk about this the way that they were minted. Uh, they were done more systematically and more reliably. But uh, when you looked at yep. the, the legal currency or the legal tender, the federal government allowed and accepted Spanish for the first couple of years because we didn't have our own money. So the Spanish dollar, uh, English. The English money, French money, and I want to say Dutch money was also accepted. Yep. And uh, first of all, it was that a necessity, but also because uh, you know, we didn't have a currency. And uh, if a ship captain had Spanish money as opposed to British money, I'm sure we weren't turning it away as long as they're paying. Yeah, the Spanish money came from Mexico. And in Peru. The, well, Peru is further down, but yeah, Mexico and Peru. And there were uh, silver mines in Zacatecas and San Luis Potosí and places like that. And I think they were very diligent about uh, how they minted them and putting those little ridges uh, so they so couldn't, you couldn't be cut, it. cut so you them. Couldn't yeah. So you couldn't pie shape them. Probably the most important fact was that, that you couldn't uh, diminish the value of the actual coin by chopping it in half right. or in that, quarters or in eighths. That's why you have those little ridges. That's why it coins. was originally called the pieces of H, Ocho Reales de España, and there were supposed to be eight pieces in that coin, but you couldn't... In Treasure Island, there was a... You couldn't a, cut them. In the, in the novel Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, there was a parrot that was always saying, pieces of eight, pieces of eight. Uh-huh. So, yes, for so our Blink Radio audience understands that the origins of currency of the United States began with Spanish silver Spanish dollars. silver dollars from Mexico, and I think you're right, Peru also, yes. Yes. Continue, Adam. We are now down to our final our final minutes. So some more just wrapping it up with some quotes. 
So as described by Bordowicz, who's one of the historians we've been talking about, he describes that all we had was the Constitution. It was a piece of paper. It's between four and 5,000 words. But what the first Congress does under Madison's leadership is they take that skeletal outline, which is the Constitution, and he makes it into a government. The Republican dream had been he breathes life into the Constitution, giving it flesh and bone, and uh, pushes it uh, to its feet and makes it walk. And John Trumbull, the famous painter, who knew a lot of the founding fathers because he painted them, uh, this is one of his quotes, in no nation, by no legislature, was ever so much done in so short a period for the establishment of government, order, and general tranquility. And that's something that he writes in a letter to John Adams, which we have, again, on statutesandstories.com. And here's a more trivia for you. So this is the, the shining moment. They have to get this right because Plan A didn't work. The articles didn't work. So this is Plan B, and they don't have a Plan C. So this has to work. Otherwise, it's going to be fighting between the states and uh, Britain. Yeah, this is the part Britain. that's close to Adam, um, to Ed Vidal and mine's heart. Article 5. <laughs> Article 5. So they got to get it to work. So uh, here's the question. How many laws, and it's unimportant to know the exact number, but estimate how many laws do you think the first Congress passes? And each of these laws is going to set a precedent. This is building the country. So approximately how many laws do you think were adopted by the first Congress? How many laws were uh, by the first Congress? I believe there were three. No, it doesn't. So I'll give you the exact number. Oh, come on, man. Don't embarrass me like that. No, I have no idea. So in my mind, it's a good number. 118 laws were adopted. Wow. But wait a minute. Is that the first, second, and third Congress? No, or you that, just, that's just, just the, the very first, first and the wow. three sessions. That is a lot. Oh, I'm confusing the sessions with the actual Congress. It's a two-year two year. Well, the session. first Congress itself was three sessions, correct? Three sessions over two years. Yeah, over two years. So, yeah, so they did uh, 118? Exactly, 118 laws. So wow. Federal criminal laws, right. immigration law, copyright laws, right. patent laws, the first federal labor law. We could talk about that one day. The Lighthouse Act. The yeah, well, they made the lighthouses, absolutely. Do you and have a the lighthouse down here? Yeah. Well, okay. I don't know about the Florida lighthouse. That'd be cool if, to the find Florida out if that was... The lighthouse. Yeah, the, the one here in Key Biscayne was a... I don't think so, but uh, I don't think it was one of the earliest lighthouses okay. in Florida. What the hell was Florida back then? Right. Uh, it was a big old mosquito Swamp. marsh. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's no, it's noted the the intellect of the people of its time for the copyright laws to be established so early in that first Congress. It's quite commendable for a country to respect people's original thought and creativity. Yep, very important. Copyright, the Copyright Act. Continue, Adam. So I'm not sure how much time we have, but I want to talk about the Senate. You have all the time you want. If you want to go another hour, it's fine with me. Well, we'll do five minutes. <laughs> okay. So the House is under the uh, leadership of Madison, who did a superb job. He had planned, he thought it through, and he carried it out. What about the Senate? So the Senate, unfortunately, bogs down in protracted debates. And who is in charge of the Senate? It's Vice President Adams. And he gets caught up in uh, formalities. And one of the big issues for Adam, and he's all about perceptions. And I think he sort of had maybe a little bit of, I don't want to get into so much of the psychology, but um, we could talk about why he may have looked at it this way. But his concern was, um, you know, the, sure, it's good to pass laws, but we have to have precedents and we have to have traditions. And what traditions are we going to set up? Because everything we do is creating a precedent. So uh, the Senate spends a lot of time focusing on titles for all, whatever reason. So here, an etiquette. So here you have one of the one of the, and I think it's kind of funny, one of the um, ideas of what the Adams wants to call the president, because whenever the president approaches somebody, what do you call him? 
Uh, you know, what does he wear? How do you address him? Does he stand? Do you kneel with the king? You know, you kiss his hand. So there's a lot of going, a lot of a lot of uh, information going on behind the scenes. You want to get it right. So here's what Washington would have been called by Adams if Adams was able to convince the Senate to come up with this title. So Adams wants the president to be called, believe it or not, and it's a big mouthful. He wants the president to be addressed as His Highness, the President of the United States and protector of their liberties. And uh, here I'm going to describe, not only is it silly to have such a title for the president, you know, we're more democratic than that, but uh, notice what he calls it. He says, president of the United States and protector of their liberties. So still, back in this time frame, they weren't considering the United States as the singular one United States. We consider today the United States as one country, the United States. But uh, when he's coming up with this title, they considered the United States in the plural as the states that were united. So this is what happened in this first Congress is we're now creating the United States as as the one central federal government that that combines and pulls all the the states together. And they they did a masterful job, and uh, that gives you some of the background about what the Senate did. And the last thing I'll mention, and this is really in the weeds, but uh, in addition to passing laws and setting up the government, they also wind up getting in the neighborhood of 600 petitions. So you have the Revolutionary War soldiers who hadn't been paid, and they're sending in petitions because they want to be paid. They want if they have a disability, they want to be taken care of their family. People who had ideas for copyrights and patents because the laws hadn't been passed yet, they're asking Congress to adopt the law recognizing their individual patent. And people coming forward saying that uh, you know my house was burnt down during the war. So you have literally 600 petitions that are written seeking. Congress's assistance to compensate them or to give them a job. So there was a lot going on with the Congress being overwhelmed with all these petitions. And uh, they did pass 10 private bills. What is a private bill? So a regular law applies across the board, creates a department or establishes an agency, applies across the country. But a private bill is something that just addresses one person or one little city. So they did do 10 private bills, but generally they tried to move all those petitions to committees. And everything they do with this new Congress is setting a precedent. So that's a little bit about the petitions, and I'm going to encourage everybody, one of these days, go to statutesandstories.com, and one of the good resources that gets into the story, in addition to the historians, is a diary was written by Senator William McCauley, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but it's M-A-C-L-A-Y, so McClay or McCauley, and he's from Pennsylvania, and he was one of the few individuals that kept a diary of the Senate. So because they were behind closed doors, and they didn't have reporters in the Senate, so that's how you would know about what happening behind the scenes and uh, some of the uh, the background of the, the day-to-day uh, proceedings before Congress. So I, I think that gives us a good uh, story of, of how the pieces fit together, the hard work of assembling the, the institutions and the structure of the federal government. And I'm thinking if we should end with one more quote. But um, this is the story of Madison. And thankfully, Madison had Hamilton to carry out uh, some of the laws that were passed. And you had Washington working with that, the cabinet and, and, and Washington, uh, who everyone had respect for, uh, was able to, uh, you know, not take too much credit, but he wanted to oversee and uh, make sure it all worked because he knew it was his reputation on the line. Well, I mean, he gets to be president of the United States, right? So he didn't talk yeah. about bill of rights, but that's probably what <laughs> eventually he gets. He gets his no, just we can't cri- do bill of rights here. But it's interesting what the title that you suggested was because he says protector, uh, uh, president of the United States, plural, and protector of their plural liberties. And I've heard it said that. Until it wasn't until after the Civil War that the United States was referred to as a singular. 
It, and it would take time. Yeah, People it would take time. Treat us as a singular, meaning the one United States country right. as opposed to 13 right. individual well, states. Yep. So uh, rounding out the story. So Madison is most responsible for putting together the Bill of Rights, uh, which uh, had to be ratified by the state. So he has his fingerprints all over that. And it is quite a story, and uh, we should be thankful that they, they pulled it off. Well, you have now end, uh, ended a wonderful night with... Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this contribution to WSQF Blink Radio 94.5. You've been listening to Adam Levinson, who has a wonderful website called statuesandstories.com. We wish him and we look forward to him every single Monday from 7 to 8, sometimes uh, 7 to eight ten. hopefully one day 7 to 9. And thank you very much, Adam. It's uh, I think it's only appropriate that we, uh, since we talked about tariffs and money and the United States getting funded for this time, these, those were the days where we're in the black instead of in debt. So ACDC back in the black is the next song. So stay free, my friends. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Good night. Good night.